Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Today's guest will be Dr. Gerard Younger. Hello, Gerard, and thank you very much for well for welcome for joining us again today. Yeah, happy to talk with you. That's wonderful. So, you're going to take us on a journey. Can you tell us when you first heard about LDN? Yeah, or or we can go even further back until when I uh, first heard of naltrexone um, because I. I used it in different contexts before I even heard of uh, LDN. So I don't know if you want to go all the way back there or start with LDN. No, uh, we'll go all the way back. We we have plenty (laughs) of time. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah, I I think it's an. I mean, it's basically my my scientific uh, career. So um, yeah, I can. I'm happy to talk about that. I actually used it um, as a graduate student. So before I even had my PhD, I was at the University of Tennessee. And um, at that time, I, I wasn't even looking at fibromyalgia. I wasn't looking at chronic fatigue syndrome. I was interested in, uh, I was in a program trying to figure out what's the relationship between physiology and psychology. How, how, did, how does chemistry in our body drive who we are? And uh, I was doing different studies, but I was trying to figure out this group called repressive copers. Uh, and that's not a phrase that's thrown around that much, but they're people who um, they don't acknowledge negative stuff around them so they don't realize when people are mad at them and so they go through life and they say that everything's great but even when things aren't great and so they have really difficult times in relationships because they can't detect when things are bad and so that's not a good thing and what's interesting about these repressive copers is they have really high blood pressure which is kind of strange because if they think everything's good why is their blood pressure so high so I thought I think I know what's going on with these people. I think that unconsciously they are detecting things are bad, but they're repressing it, and that's driving up their blood pressure. And when your blood pressure goes up, it activates opioid systems. And so you flood your system with opioids, and that makes you feel good. So they're basically activating their own opioid system. And so I wanted to prove that, so I actually used naltrexone, and that was the first time I ever tried this drug. I didn't know how it was going to work, but... Now, Trexone blocks the opioid system. And so I gave these people 50 milligrams of naltrexone, and then I gave it to healthy people as well, or people with, who weren't repressive copers and didn't have hypertension. And the results were really, uh, really pretty fascinating. This is my dissertation study. The healthy people, I'd give them the naltrexone. Again, this is full dose, not low dose. Mm-hmm. And they didn't notice anything at all. It was the same as placebo. They didn't feel any different. They're like, I don't know. Did you give me something? I can't tell. But these repressive copers had a very significant reaction. They became really anxious. Um, Some of them got into arguments after they left the laboratory, and they all had increases of, of kind of a malaise and anxious feelings. So what I thought happened is when I blocked their opioid system, I got rid of that coping mechanism they had that they didn't even realize they were activating 
And so then all this anxiety that they've been avoiding with their opioids suddenly came up, and so all these people became really anxious. And so I think it's one of the first times that we've ever shown that you can change a, a physiological system like the opioid system and, and change a, a critical part of someone's personality. And so um, that, that got me started on Trexone, and I realized, wow, you know, this, uh, this opioid system has a lot more to do than just pain. And now we know, yeah, it's related to the immune system. It's way, way more than what we used to think. So that's how I got started with naltrexone. I've been using it in a lot of different contexts ever since then. Mm-hmm. So I, can, don't, I was going to say, know, don't, don't stop to... there. <laughs> Carry on. This is really interesting. All right. I'll so yeah. tell you what. I'll walk you through, through the thing and just let me know if I you know, go into too much detail or you know, too much or too little, but, you know, that, that was my dissertation. So, again, that was University of Tennessee. I'm like, all right, this is, this is a drug that's very important. This is doing something significant to people, and uh, the opioid system is, has a lot more to do than just pain. So, you know, I'm going to keep an eye on this. I'm going to keep researching this. So then I went to Arizona State University. Um, this is kind of the second phase of my, you know, kind of scientific career. And when I got to ASU, we're t- we were trying to figure out different diseases, but one of them was fibromyalgia. And uh, especially at that time, you know, this is 12-plus years ago, we knew basically nothing about fibromyalgia. We knew they were in pain all over. We had no idea what was wrong with them. And so I was trying to figure out fibromyalgia. I, I kind of took it on. It's like this is an interesting not only scientific problem because I can discover something new, but it's a huge medical problem because there's millions of people suffering from this disorder. So I started by asking around, you know, through the Internet and through clinicians. I'm like, what have you tried for fibromyalgia that actually works? And this uh, LDN was coming up, and this is the first I'd heard of it is when I actually got on the Internet and started asking people, well, did anything work? And they're like, yeah, actually, the best thing that ever I've ever took was low-dose naltrexone. And I had the same response to that that probably most clinical researchers have, which is, well, that's weird. Opioids like naltrexone, I'm sorry, you know, opioid antagonists like naltrexone, they block your opioid system. Why in the world would someone who has a pain disorder ever want to block their opioids? The opioids are what are supposed to be reducing your pain, so you're removing your, your own pain-reducing mechanisms. It's the opposite of what you'd want to do. Most doctors are giving you opioids to increase that system. So it seemed, it seemed backwards. Um, and so I was kind of struggling with how in the world could this be working? And so I you know, started talking to people who were doing this uh, work clinically, and they were saying, okay, well, what's happening here is you're – we're giving a low dose, so we're blocking the system temporarily, but that causes the, the system to compensate by producing more opioids. So we block it transiently at night, and then the next day you're going to have the surge of additional opioids. And I thought, well, that's, uh, I guess that is possible, though it, it wasn't super convincing to me because that's kind of a – that's saying fibromyalgia is an opioid deficiency syndrome. And if that were the case, then giving people opioids should help. If they're deficient, then why not just give them oxycodone or, or you know, hydrocodone, something like that. But that doesn't work for fibromyalgia. So that explanation didn't sit well with me. So I, ri- I originally didn't think to use 
uh, low-dose naltrexone because I didn't understand, the mechanism didn't make uh, sense to me. But I thought, okay, I'll do a study to see if this theory is right. Um, maybe fibromyalgia has a, the opioid system is dysregulated. So I actually did something where I gave a full dose of naltrexone. This was at ASU. I was probably second year as a postdoc. I gave a full dose of naltrexone to fibromyalgia patients, and I, I saw how that changed their response to pain that we had administered in the laboratory. We did heat pain and mechanical pain, and then also did healthy controls. Um, so healthy women and women with fibromyalgia before and after a full dose of naltrexone. The question is, is um, does this affect one group more than the other in a way that suggests fibromyalgia has dysregulated opioid system? And when I finished that study, I couldn't find any differences between the groups. So the naltrexone affected the fibromyalgia women. This is just one administration in full dose. affected the uh, fibromyalgia women the same as it did the healthy women. It, it, it did, there was no difference. In fact, there was very little change at all in terms of how they responded to pain. So I, came, you know, I published that paper, and I came away saying, I can see no evidence that there's anything wrong with the opioid system of women with fibromyalgia. I don't think that's what the problem is. So that, that idea that lotus naltrexone is, you know, blocking the system and then they make more opioids and that's why it helps, I don't think that's what's going on. And so I kind of sat on it for a while because I'm like, well, I know people are saying lotus naltrexone is working, but until, I, until the mechanism makes sense to me, I can't put a lot of my resources and time into it because it's just too risky. So... You know, I was at Arizona State University for uh, three years total, finishing up my postdoc and learning different, uh, different techniques. And right before I went to Stanford, uh, one of my mentors, his name is John Rich, he gave me this paper. And it, I think I can say it's the, the most important paper I've ever read in my scientific career. And it was called Glia as the Bad Guys. I don't know if you've ever seen this paper. It was written by uh, Mark Hutchinson and Linda Watkins out of Colorado. Mark Hutchinson is back in Australia now. But it was a paper that was saying that a lot of chronic pain and other chronic diseases is caused by um, abnormal microglia, which is something that, you know, you and I have talked about many times before. But that was a new idea to me at the time. It's like, whoa, this really fits with fibromyalgia. This would explain why they have the symptoms they do if their microglia are dysregulated this would make a lot of sense. This explains all their pain, their fatigue, because when the microglia are activated, it causes sickness response, which is exactly what fibromyalgia looks like. And it would also explain why we can never detect anything with blood draws, because this is all happening in the brain. So that was a really impactful paper. And I, you know, so I transferred over to Stanford with this idea in my head that I think fibromyalgia is this abnormal microglia activation. So I need to find a way to test this. And so I started, got to Stanford, and I was trying to think, all right, how am I going to prove this? We can't get to the microglia because you would kill the person if you do that. So what drug could I give that would help? And I was looking at minocycline and, and uh, other things like that. And I, I didn't find anything that was really, uh, uh, really inspiring me. And then... Uh, probably the second most important thing happened. So I was at my office, and uh, I get calls all the time. People have ideas, and I, I love getting those ideas just from people who say, hey, have you ever thought about this? And I try to get back to people, but 
usually there's too many for me to respond to all of them. But I got this call on my voicemail, and it was somebody I didn't know who it was. Um, and he said, I need to talk to you about naltrexone and fibromyalgia. And so I decided to call him back, and he said, you know, I got on the phone with him. His uh, name's Mr. Benz, and he said, um, you know, I saw that you did something with naltrexone and fibromyalgia, and I said, yeah, but I don't think I'm going to do more with that because this opioid blockade thing doesn't make sense to me. I just can't make it fit. And he said, well, you know that naltrexone also blocks microglia activation. And I said, no, I did not know that. I had never seen that before. I've missed that literature. And so I got off the phone with him, and I started looking through literature, not about low-dose naltrexone, but this is, this is basic science literature, and I found a number of papers where, yes, naltrexone um, blocks microglia response and reduces their activation. So then everything clicked. Now it makes sense to me why a low-dose of naltrexone could help fibromyalgia, because if I think fibromyalgia is due to these abnormal activated microglia, and now I've got evidence that naltrexone reduces that microglia activation, and now I'm hearing from people saying that lotus naltrexone helps with their symptoms, now everything's converging in a way that makes sense. So this was probably 2008 when all this kind of clicked. I went, okay, now I've got it. I think this naltrexone is going to work. Let's do the clinical trial. So, so the thing is, it, it took all that stuff coming together because when you're a postdoctoral fellow, if you if you pursue the wrong idea and you invest all those resources into it, that could be the end of your career because you've got this short period of time to get something interesting, to get funding that's going to fund your career. So, um, you know, it took it took a lot for to compel me to go in that direction, but it finally all came together at that point. So, um, and that's what started the clinical trial. So I can go into those. Is that, is that pretty, pretty clear yes. explanation? What got me up to? It really is. Yeah. So that, um, piqued your interest as it were. Yeah. And, you know, it prioritized, you know, there's, there are, there's a hundred different things I could have done. And, you know, the story could have been me talking, you know, researching a number of other drugs. I could have easily gone another direction. So, you know, it, it did more than just pique the interest. I mean, it really was compelling enough um, to make me prioritize that above all the other things I could have been doing um, because, you know, we only have time to run, you know, maybe you can run, especially as a postdoc, maybe three studies really well in three years. So you can't do a lot. So you put it at the very top and, you know, that wouldn't have happened if we didn't have that combination, if we didn't have the basic science um, that's been done by one type of researcher, if we didn't have those patients online saying, hey, this worked, um, and this kind of clinical stuff as well. So all all came together, and but no one had done a clinical trial. And so that was an obvious thing to me. It's like, all right, there's enough, enough has come together. Let's do the first clinical trial. Um, again, at that early stage, you don't want to put in a lot of money and time into something that may not work. And so I was pretty cautious, and we ran that first clinical trial at Stanford probably in 2008. Um, and, and Mr. Benz, who gave me that idea, actually helped fund that study, which was really critical. That, that funding did not come from NIH. 
Uh, it came from a private donor, uh, so that's really important. And we were able to get enough money to do the 10-person study, which is the first time it had been tried in fibromyalgia. And I think, um, and I don't know if you want to go through the details of the study, because yes, we actually I'll... did quite a few studies after that. But, I, I would, right. actually. Uh, the well, first one... Now, because this, sure, the, the first one is where you actually put your career on the line to prove you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think we would like yeah, to hear right. that. Yeah, yeah it's, it was the most risky one from my perspective at the time, and, and now it seems pretty easy. But back then, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. And so there's a lot of guesswork and, uh, you know, especially, you know, dosage and things like that. I just had to, just had to guess and, and rely on kind of reports that have been put out by other groups using it clinically. But, you know, uh, when I'm sitting there... Again, 2008 postdoc, like, okay, I want to do this trial. I want to do it right, but you can't put all your resources into it. You have to make it kind of economical, I guess. So the first study is what happens when you want to do it relatively quick to see what your results are, and you don't want to spend hundreds of thousands of of dollars on it. You do a pretty small sample size trial, 10 people, and you don't follow them for very long, maybe 10 weeks, and uh, you don't double-blind it. Um, It's just single-blind. So the the patients in the study, who all were women with fibromyalgia, they received placebo first and for, I think it was uh, four weeks, and then uh, lotus naltrexone for not even 10 weeks. I knew what they were getting because it's a lot easier to run that type of study. You don't have to keep everything blinded to the investigator, but the patients didn't know what they were getting went. So that's a single blind study, and that's kind of the lowest level of kind of blind control that you can do, but it's good enough to control for some of that expectation stuff. So we did that, um, ran the study pretty quickly. I think we got it done in about a year, and the results were really impressive. Um, if, If people don't know, what I like to do, I don't like the idea of just bringing people to the laboratory every few months and then doing tests. So we we always give them um, either tablets or phones, and I want to see what they're like at home because that's what really matters. I don't care what they're like in the laboratory. That's such a weird environment anyway. Just coming to a lab can change the way you feel about things. So what are they like in their real environment at home? And so we give them these tablets, handheld computers, and they can track their pain, fatigue, cognition, stress, sleep, and they can do that every day at home, and then we get real-world um, observations. Um, so it looked good. I mean, basically, in that first study, out of 10 people, six of them had a significant response, which would be at least a 30% reduction of their pain, um, and rating their their improvement as uh, good or very good. Uh, so six out of ten is pretty rare when it comes to pharmaceuticals. Usually drugs may work for, you know, 20% or so of people. So this was kind of shocking. Uh, there was a placebo response. There were I clearly saw a handful of people who had a great response at first, and then that response kind of went away over time, and that suggests someone who maybe just was excited about trying the drug and um, they, it was an expectation transient thing, but that was the minority. The majority had this, you know, if you wanted to look at the paper, it's, a, it's not a placebo response at all because it's a very slow reduction of their pain week after week after week, and that's 
not what placebo effects look like. Placebo effects are very fast, and they happen very early. So we were seeing this improvement of symptoms over a long period of time, and what I didn't realize at the time is that naltrexone, it takes a while to know if it's going to work. I mean, I think, I don't know, clinicians may argue maybe they observe something different, but definitely in our trials, a month is not enough. I mean, at a month, you're just starting to get a clue as to whether or not someone's going to respond. At two months, you're getting a much better clue, but it may take three months before you fully know if someone's really, if it's really worth them being on it long time. I didn't realize that at the time, so the study was too short, and so I saw the symptoms going down, 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 and then it was the end of the study because we don't analyze the data until the end. So I'm like, ah, um, I wonder what would have happened if we would have done this for a longer period of time. Would this have kept going down? I mean, when does it end? I don't know because we, we ended the study. So there were a lot of things that there were a lot of deficiencies in that first study, but it did what it was supposed to. I mean, the idea for this first study is to say, is there something here? Um, it was That's the only question. Is this an area that's worth pursuing? And the results were definitely clear enough. They weren't enough for me to say, hey, everyone take this drug, because you can't do that until you run a lot of trials. But it was enough to say, yeah, this is a, a promising line of research. And so uh, that was the first publication. I think that came out, um, I think that was 2009. Yeah, I think it was 2009 came out. And... Uh, got a lot of attention, and it enabled, it was enough information for me to get uh, larger grants, time for American Fibromyalgia Syndrome Association, to do the second trial. So I can talk about that next, and, unless there's anything we wanted to discuss about the first one. No, that's fine. I'm, the world really has to thank you for doing that first trial. Put, as I say, putting your career on the line, having the confidence to go with it, um, it may have been decades before somebody else had decided mm. to do it. So a big thank you for that. That uh, yeah. Yeah, Very brave of you. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> pleased it, it worked out. But we'll just have a, a quick break and then we'll come back and, and hear about your other studies. Okay. The LTN Research Trust has its own forum, which can be found forum ldnresearchtrust.org or via our website. The forum is divided into sections so it's easy to navigate and find what you're looking for. You can share your experience, ask questions, keep a journal, etc. Unlike Facebook, the posts are always easy to find and don't get buried. We have a private medical professionals only section. To find out more, please email me Linda at ldnrt.org. Today's show sponsor, Care First Speciality Pharmacy. They are leading compounders of LDN and other custom treatments servicing patients in over 18 states coast to coast. They are widely accredited to provide you with the highest quality demanded by the industry and the expert service you expect. To learn more, call 844-822-7379 or visit cfspharmacy.com Welcome back. 
So where does the story go now? You've got the funding to do your second trial. How do you go about putting that together? Sure. So, right, um, AFSA was good enough to give us the money, which was a direct result of the first study that was published and the results that came out, and that's how it works in the grant world is you do the small. Then the next step is there's two things you want to do. Um, you have to replicate the first study because, you know, if you ever look in the scientific literature and you see one paper on how this drug worked and there's not a follow-up paper, you can never trust that first study. It has to be replicated because if you just run one study, there could be a fluke. You might have just happened to get the 10 people who were going to respond great and no one else was going to respond to it. Or maybe, um, you know, so maybe the population or the sample wasn't representative. Maybe there was just some kind of, they just happened to get better. Um, it, it sounds unlikely. I know it may sound um, super unlikely, but there are lots of studies that look great, and then when someone tries to repeat it, they fail miserably. And so as a scientist who's, who wants to put out stuff that's real, um, the first thing I want to do after I get an incredible and maybe unexpected result is to make sure that it's real by repeating it. And so that's the, that's the big idea of the second study. But there's something else that we wanted to do with the second study, and that's to make the study bigger, um, so more representative of, of real-world fibromyalgia. And then we also wanted to add a bunch of experimental control. So I, I, you know, I mentioned that the first study was kind of weak, on stats, and we did that for pragmatic, practical reasons. But the second study, you got to start putting double blind, and we actually did that triple blind. So that means the patient didn't know what they were getting. None of the investigators knew what the patients were getting when. And when we did the statistics, we were blinded to what the groups were and when people received what. It's placebo controlled, so it's blinded all the way until the stats are finished, and then right before we write the paper, we uncover what's drug, what's placebo. So um, that's about as blinded as you can get. So that adds, so that means there's no bias in how we do the analysis, so we can trust the results more. So we made it larger, we um, had it placebo controlled, and we added the uh, um, the extra blinding thing, and we also made it longer. That was the other thing, as I noted. Uh, on the first study, it was just too short, and so now we doubled the length, so I get to see what happens over a longer period of time. And so the goal was, or that question was, if we do this again in a larger group, are we going to get the same results, or is it going to be a wash the second time? So ran the study. This was also done at Stanford, and um, this was probably done about 2011, 2012, so, you know, it took more than a year because this is a, a bigger study, and uh, AFSA, again, American Fibromyalgia Syndrome Association, helped us to recruit, but, you know, it still takes a while. Uh, we targeted 30 women, so this is not a massive study. This is something that probably cost I don't know, roughly about $75,000 to do, so not very expensive, but then again, it's not hundreds and hundreds of people like you see these massive pharmaceutical-funded trials. This was 30, so three times larger than the first one, but, you know, not, not impressively big. But it's good enough to do the statistics. So the idea was basically the same. I didn't want to change too much. I didn't want to change the dosage because it worked so well the first time. So we stuck with the dose that we've always used, which is 4.5 milligrams. I didn't do, and, and this is kind of unheard of now, but I didn't do any kind of titration, so I didn't start low. That means some people have 
um, some side effects sometimes at the beginning um, because we don't do that slow titration. But the majority of people did absolutely fine. Again, this is fibromyalgia, but most of them did perfectly fine going straight into 4.5. Um, but I think it would have been better if we would have started at one and had a, a few weeks to increase it. But that's stuff I know now that I didn't know then. Um, but it was okay for the time. So 4.5 milligrams, uh, we much longer uh, period of observation. And we did the same thing. I gave them the tablet, handheld computer, had them track their symptoms at home. They took it once a day at night. And their naltrexone phase was... 12 weeks. And I also added a uh, follow-up phase at the end of four weeks because I wanted to know what happens when you stop taking naltrexone or low-dose naltrexone. Do you stay improved? Do your symptoms go right back to baseline? Um, or does it slowly go back? That, tell, that gives me information about how fundamental of a mechanism is being affected by this drug because, you know, if you're taking a, a pain reliever like a, an opioid, and it's reducing your pain, that's great, but if you stop taking that opioid, as soon as that drug is washed out of your, your system, like 24 hours later, your pain's going to be back maybe even worse than before. And so I wanted to know if something like that's happening with naltrexone. Um, when we finished the study, a um, number of interesting things came out. So the first and probably most important thing is when we looked at pain reduction, the rate of response was the same as it was in the first study. It was 60%. So it still looks like 6 out of 10 women with fibromyalgia are getting a clinically significant response from lidocinotrexone. That, so that's the major finding. That means, you know, if you're a physician and you've got 10 fibromyalgia patients, you don't know what to do with them, you give them all lidocinotrexone, you should expect that six of them are going to get a really good response from that. So that's the most important thing to put out. Um, some other observations we, we made with that is um, the follow-up period, to me, was really fascinating. What happened after they stopped taking the naltrexone, I wasn't sure what was going to happen, but just like the symptoms are reduced very slowly when you're on naltrexone, the symptoms take a while to come back when you stop taking it. So at the end of 12 weeks of naltrexone, they just stopped cold turkey, no more pills, you're done with the study, um, and then we tracked them for another month. The symptoms did not go back to baseline in that month period. Now, it didn't stay flat. It started to increase, but it was a very slow increase. So that was telling me that Naltrexone is not just something that's relieving symptoms, so you have to keep it in your system all the time or else your symptoms come back. It's changing something fundamentally because that's the only way you would expect to have symptom relief even when the drug is eliminated from your system. And again, naltrexone's gone in 24 or so hours. And so for you to still have be better than baseline of the month, something changed fundamentally. And I still think that's changing the way that the microglia uh, respond to stimuli, and that's why it's working. And so I, I think it's not just covering up symptoms, but, um, you know, we still have to prove that, but that's how I interpret it. So that was kind of the findings. Um, even at 12 weeks, we still did not see the symptom reduction bottom out. So even 12 weeks is not enough to see what naltrexone is going to do for a person. I don't even know now how much time you need. I still think it's kind of around three to four months where you're going to maybe see that max effect, but, you know, we'd have to do a, a really long study to see that. So 
same response rate. Also at that time, I was noticing that the work by Jill Smith, uh, she's at Georgetown now in Crohn's disease, her response rate is the same. It's a six out of 10 of her Crohn's disease patients. So I'm like, wow, this is, this is really all coming together. There's got to be something here because you don't see things repeat this much unless it's legitimate. So that was an exciting time. Anytime, you know, as a researcher, one of the scariest things you can do is try to replicate one of your, your research studies because the worst thing that can ever happen to you is your study fails to replicate. Because then what do you do? You, then you have to write a paper saying, you know, that first study we did, that, that was probably wrong. And, you know, that, you can imagine how horrible it could yes. career is your reputation. So when you get that replication, you're like, wow, all right, great. Uh, that worked out. And, again, you, you see a, a lot of scientists are scared. They, they don't. They just move from one study to the next. They never replicate it because they're scared to do it. And I understand that, but, you know, you got to just take a deep breath and do it. So, so that, that was an, uh, kind of an anxious time going into the results and analyzing it. And, you know, until you see those test statistics and p-values, you know, you don't know what your life's going to be like. But it worked out the same as the first one. And so, um, you know, I knew it was on the right track then. The other at the time, I knew it was important. I didn't know exactly why, but the other big thing that came out at that time is now I had two studies, and all of them had, um, for screening, all of them had erythrocyte sedimentation rate measures taken at baseline. And we did that to screen out people with um, rheumatoid arthritis and some other autoimmune disorders because erythrocyte sedimentation rate is a marker, it's a very general marker of inflammation. And um, if it was over 60 millimeters per hour, that suggests that you have an autoimmune disorder. So we actually didn't admit anyone with an ESR over 60. But then I thought, okay, wait, you know, if naltrexone is this novel anti-inflammatory, then maybe those people with the higher ESR would have a better response to it. And so I did that correlation, and that was actually a separate paper. I think it came out in 2014 or so. And that showed exactly that, that even if your ESR is not super high, it's not in the range that would indicate an autoimmune disorder, you're probably going to respond better to lotus naltrexone if you have fibromyalgia and your ESR is slightly elevated. So that tells me that naltrexone is probably indeed working through this unique anti-inflammatory effect. It's not like aspirin. It's not like other anti-inflammatories. It's probably reducing central inflammation and a little bit of peripheral inflammation as well. So that was uh, the big takeaway from that. So that would take us to the latest study that we've done with naltrexone. To listen to individual radio shows and interviews, go to www.mixcloud.com forward slash LDN RT. I'll repeat that. It's www.mixcloud.com forward slash LDNRT. Today's show sponsor, Care First Speciality Pharmacy. They are leading compounders of LDN 
and other custom treatments servicing patients in over 18 states coast to coast. They are widely accredited to provide you with the highest quality demanded by the industry and the expert service you expect. To learn more, call 844-822-7379 or visit cfspharmacy.com. LDN Health Tracker app, called MyLDN, is available free for Androids, iPhones, Macs, PCs, iPads and notebooks. The app allows you to keep track of all your medications, pain levels, sleep, quality of life, etc. You can print out graphs and charts to take to your doctor. Full details on the LDN Research Trust website. You can keep a journal so you won't ever forget anything again and set alarms. The app is free and all your information is held securely and anonymously. By using the app, you'll be taking part in the world's largest LDN survey, anonymously. Any questions, please email me, linda at ldnrt.org. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well. Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc., You're invited to join us on air asking your questions by calling in on the local rate phone numbers in the UK and the US, which can be found on ldnradio.org. Thank you for joining us. Today's guest will be Dr. Gerard Younger, and he's coming back to join us and talk to us about all the research and his experience of low-dose naltrexone. Today's show's sponsor, Care First Speciality Pharmacy. They are leading compounders of LDN and other custom treatments servicing patients in over 18 states coast to coast. They are widely accredited to provide you with the highest quality demanded by the industry and the expert service you expect. To learn more, call 844-822-7379 or visit cfspharmacy.com 
before you go into that, yeah. can I just ask a question? We, sure. we have a lot of people who say they've got to go in hospital for surgery and they're going to need opiate painkillers and they're not going to be able to take the LDN and they're really worried about taking a break. So what you are saying there about the people with fibromyalgia, the pain didn't come back instantly. How long a break would you think somebody could take without getting negative effects from not taking the LDN? So what we saw just observing a month is that at the end of a month of stopping taking lotus naltrexone, the average participant, and there there could be individual variability, Mm. it looks like symptoms were about 50% back to baseline values after a month. So four weeks, you can expect to maybe lose, you know, I hate hate to say that sounds scary, but to lose half of your progress. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, the pain, we were just looking at pain, but pain went back up to baseline about 50%. So it wasn't all the way there, but yeah, it's something uh, to consider. Yeah. If you were having to come off it for two or three weeks, you're obviously not going to get 50% of your symptoms back or your pain back. Right. So again, that's, yeah, so for most things, if you're getting opioids, I mean, now uh, in the United States, uh, physicians are, are really, it's being hammered into them to keep you on opioids for as little time as possible. So if they can only keep you on opioids for a week, that's what they're going to do. If it's only two weeks, they're going to do as minimal as possible. And so um, it wouldn't be typical for someone to have to be off of naltrexone for a month anyway. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, if you're talking about two weeks, then maybe you're you're 25% back to baseline. And so that's mm-hmm. not as big of a deal. Um, so that's what to expect. Again, it's it's a gradual thing on average. So, you know, if someone's scared of, hey, I'm going to not take it tomorrow and I'm suddenly going to be in horrible, horrible pain, that is not, at least in fibromyalgia, that does not look like it's the case. Okay. That, that's good. Thank you for answering that. Sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, our, our latest study, this was a, a funny one. Um, this was right when I'm moving to um, University of Alabama, Birmingham, which is where I'm now. And uh, Luke Parkitney, um, who's from Australia, just joined my team at Stanford, and he's moving with me to UAB. And we really, really wanted to run. We were both interested in this big question about lotus naltrexone, which is, all right, we know that fibromyalgia patients with higher ESR seem to respond better to lotus naltrexone. But if we measure inflammatory things in the blood, do they actually go down when someone takes naltrexone? No one has done that before, and we haven't even done that. You know, in in these all these clinical trials, if I had to tell you my biggest regret, it's that I didn't measure inflammatory things in all these patients longitudinally. I would have loved to have seen, you know, what happened to interleukin six, which is inflammatory or tumor necrosis factor alpha. I don't know. I didn't track them pretty much because we didn't have the money, um, but I didn't know how important those things would be. So I had no idea, does inflammation get reduced by naltrexone? So we really quickly ran a study. It was originally going to be 12 weeks uh, because I've determined that 12 weeks is kind of the the minimum time you need to really see what's going to happen. But we were moving to, to UAB on the 1st of July, and we only had basically eight weeks so we made it an eight-week study just so we could run it, get the data, and then analyze it when we moved to UAB. So what we did with this one is we uh, recruited, again, fibromyalgia women. That's pretty much what I focused on. 
and um, we got eight women uh, into that study. So this is a small study, but then they took placebo and they took naltrexone, and they had a baseline period in naltrexone. But what's unique about this study is for the first time, we measured their inflammatory chemicals every three days. So they came in for a lot of blood draws. They'd come in about twice a week, come into lab, and we would measure all these inflammatory uh, chemicals that are most associated with um, kind of chronic pain inflammation. And some of them has been, have been implicated in fibromyalgia. And so the big question with this is, can we show that when you take lotus naltrexone, you see this steady drop of the inflammatory uh, chemicals in the blood. And that would very strongly argue for lotus naltrexone acting as a novel anti-inflammatory. So we did that study very quickly. We didn't even get to analyze the results until we got to UAB. Um, but when we did analyze those results, we found exactly what we thought was going to happen, and that is there is about 20 chemicals in the blood that are reliably reduced while you're on lotus naltrexone. And what's funny about it or interesting is you can plot this for people and you can see it just gradually going down with every uh, blood draw. It just keeps going down, down, down. At eight weeks, it was still going down. I imagine after eight weeks, they would have kept going down, but we don't know that. So the big analytes, um, most people probably won't recognize these, but interleukin-6 was the one that was most reduced. Um, tumor necrosis factor alpha, these are very important drivers of inflammation. And interleukin-1-beta was reduced, and that one's really interesting because it's probably one of the most important cytokines in driving fatigue. So this suggests to me that this may be similar in chronic fatigue syndrome. And there were a number of other ones, that, but those are probably the three most important. So that was the first time that we saw, yeah, you know, you give someone naltrexone, you are, you are definitely improving inflammation and you're improving pain and fatigue and sleep and stress. So these things have got to be related. So that's enough information for me to say I think fibromyalgia is a unique form of inflammation. It's not like rheumatoid arthritis or osteoarthritis or lupus, but it is a form of autoimmune or inflammatory disorder. Lotus naltrexone helps, and it helps by reducing that inflammation. And so that catches us up to where we're at right now, which is, you know, I can say that based on these small pilot trials, I, you know, I know if I had fibromyalgia, that's probably what I would try first um, because the side effect profile is so reasonable and low for most people. It looks convincing. I would expect my inflammation to go down. And that's where we're at. And so I think, um, you know, we can talk about possible things to do next, but this last paper I mentioned, you know, that was published in 2017. So that came out not very long ago. I mean, that was really just, I think, April of 2017. So we're still still doing the work in the area and, and trying to figure out, okay, now what's the next most important thing to do in order to see that this is actually used uh, clinically. Mm-hmm. So what are the next steps? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, let me look at my board uh, in my <laughs> office. I've got my big board of uh, ideas, and there's about looks like about 80 things written there that I want to do. 80? So, um, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, uh, so it's brainstorming. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if I do 
10% of those, I'm, I'm doing well. But again, it comes back to the prioritization. So, so you know, for lotus naltrexone, okay, there's lots of directions we can go. Do, do we do a larger trial on fibromyalgia? So do we try to get money to do a 300-person trial? Because if you really want to convince clinicians um, to give a drug, most of them wait until they see that really big trial. And I, and I totally respect that. You know, you, you know with small trials, you, you never know for sure how, how that's going to work in the general population. But so is that the direction we go? If I, if I choose to do that, it's going to take a whole lot of work. And the question is, is, is it worth it? Because if I just find the same thing I've already reported that, you know, 60% respond, well, I already know that. So is it worth me trying to get millions of dollars to do it in fibromyalgia. So that's one direction, and there's pros and cons to that. The other direction is, do I want to try lotus naltrexone in other diseases? So we are um, running a chronic fatigue syndrome lotus naltrexone trial, because I, I still think those two things are connected, fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue. But we have, of course, multiple sclerosis. We've had pilot trials of that, but I've never done an MS trial, and it's time for another really well-designed trial that's probably fairly large, like 60 to 100 people would be good. So that's another direction is going to different diseases. And I get asked, you know, probably the biggest question or the most frequent question I get is, I have this disease, do you think lotus naltrexone would work for that? And I have to answer the same way, which is always disappointing for the people who write to me, but I always have to say, you know, it's possible, but we cannot know until we do a clinical trial specifically for that disorder. So, um, so I don't know. And there's a lot of conditions that could benefit, um, a lot of neurodegenerative conditions. I mean, I'm even thinking of things where things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's where there's neurodegeneration, but that may be started by neuroinflammation. If lotus naltrexone stops that neuroinflammation, you may prevent the neuronal damage that causes the symptoms down the road. And so early treatment for a lot of different disorders is possible. So, but we can't test them all because it takes too much time and money. So we got to think of which is most important. So those are directions, bigger fibromyalgia, different conditions. Um, the, the other direction is trying to prove conclusively how lotus naltrexone works. Um, and that requires some brain imaging. So we're working on some unique brain imaging methods to show inflammation in the brain. So if I had a brain scan where I can scan a person and say, yes, here is inflammation in the brain, and then give them naltrexone and scan them again and say, look, the inflammation is gone, then we're, we're on to something that would convince even skeptical scientists and clinicians. But without that scan, um, some of them will be reluctant to really adopt lotus naltrexone. Now, the problem is coming up with that scan is really difficult. It takes a lot of work to do. And so we're trying some MRI methods. Um, we're working on some PET methods to do that and trying to figure out what's the best, most reliable, and I guess less, least invasive way of doing it. Because, you know, if you do PET scans, you have to inject a radioactive tracer and things like that. It's not, not a huge deal, but some people don't want to do that. So that's the other approach. Do we try to, do we really focus on proving the mechanism of lotus naltrexone? The question is, which one of these approaches, if successfully done, which one of these would help 
patients the most. Um, mm-hmm. What's going to really get this in the consciousness of treating clinicians? Is it the larger trial or is it proving the mechanism? I, I don't know the answer, so, um, you know, we just try to look at the options, see which way we should go, and then we decide on one and we follow it out and see what happens. So what is the cost as a trial versus <clears throat> finding out with scans um, the mechanism of LDN? Hmm. Yeah, so um, a, a clinical trial on about 100 people is something that could be done, at cheapest could be done. They're expensive. They really are. I mean, um, you know, half a million uh, U.S. dollars would probably be the minimum to do a really well-controlled large clinical trial. So somewhere between half a million and a million uh, is what's required to do a study that would probably take, you know, it'd probably take two to three years to recruit that many people and to track them. And, and a lot of that money goes to the salaries. It just takes so much effort to, uh, so much work to keep all the patients organized, getting the drugs, all that. Um, so that's about what we're looking at for a clinical trial. For the brain imaging, uh, depends on the modality. So MRI, just so people know, uh, MRI basically costs $500 an hour to run. So we kind of do the math, and if we want to run 50 people and scan them twice. You know, you kind of do 50 times 2 times 500, and then you have to pay them some. So it's cheaper um, to do MRI. The PET stuff, um, that's going to be more expensive. That's something that's also going to be probably in the half a million to a million dollars to develop a very conclusive PET scan that we think we can associate with neuroinflammation. But you get... I think PET is going to eventually, this is positron emission tomography, it's probably going to get us closer to truly measuring neuroinflammation than MRI does because MRI, the things it picks up, I don't think you can measure neuroinflammation directly with MRI. We measure brain temperature, which is a proxy, but we don't know how close of a proxy it is. So I'm probably going to go, I'm still doing brain temperature, but ultimately I do want to go to PET and I want to find a... um, a PET scan that can show inflammation, and you know we're we're working with a, a way of tagging peripheral immune cells to see if they break through the blood-brain barrier. And so, if we find them in the brain, we know that there's brain inflammation. And so, that's the direction we're going. And I hope we get some funding for that. We're working with um, uh, a couple of groups to try to get that going and do a pilot study and see if there's something there. Mm. That sounds really interesting, doesn't it? To uh... Yeah, mm. it's it's another big risk. That's my my next big <laughs> risk um, because no one's done anything like this to try to tag immune cells and see if they migrate to the brain after a few days. Um, I think it's uh, the the nice thing about it is if it works, it'll be a huge advance to be able to see uh, abnormal infiltration of immune cells in the brain. Will just be it'll be useful for something for for MS and all kinds of neurodegenerative mm. disorders and neuroinflammatory and rheumatologic disorders will just be really, really important. But, um, you know, that's one approach. And I want to do multiple things in parallel. So I do, we, we do need more clinical trials. And, and the big question with the clinical trials is who, who are these responders? Okay, so six out of ten, but who are these six out of ten? And who are these other four that don't, how, how do we predict? 
why why don't they respond? What's different? And I don't know the answer to that fully yet. I, I imagine that these are two different subgroups, and they actually have a different underlying disease. It just looks the same to us, but they're not actually the same. And I'd really like to know how do we predict who responds to lotus naltrexone, and that's a, that's another direction. But we'd have to run a pretty large clinical trial to try to do that. Mm. Do you think if the um, four people had taken it for a longer period, they might have improved? I'm only saying that because I, most doctors who I've interviewed think that their patients, you know, the, the ultimate time is around the four-month mark before uh, okay. the majority notice something. That was all I was thinking. So uh, what I will say on that is... It could be a question of time, but maybe even more likely it could be a question of dosage um, because, again, we don't modulate dosage. And if there's one thing I hear a lot from clinicians, I think I've, I've mentioned this to you before, it's that they say, you know, there's some people that 4.5 doesn't work, mm-hmm. but 3 works well for them for some reason. Or even more common, 4.5 didn't work, but for this person, when we move them to 6 milligrams a day, they really responded. And... You know, I have a couple of rheumatologists who tell me that all the time that if they if 4.5 doesn't work, they go to 6 or 7.5 or at the very max maybe 9 milligrams a day, and they are telling me for sure that they have patients who respond at the higher dosages but not at the lower. So that suggests another future line, which is instead of doing a huge clinical trial at 4.5 milligrams, do we do a trial where we modulate the dose and test maybe three different dosages or or run someone for a few months at a dose and then increase it and see what happens, I'm really interested in doing that too. Mm. So, yeah, those four people, maybe, you know, maybe a couple of them, it was just a, it just wasn't the right dosage for them. Um, I don't know about the time because they looked pretty flat to me. I mean, it didn't look like a slow decline. It looked like they just weren't responding. Um, but, no, you don't know. Maybe after two months they would have start, started dropping. So um, that that's possible, and we didn't modulate any of those things. So just have to do more studies to test those questions. <laughs> I was going to say, the more that you do, the more questions there are to answer, aren't yeah. there? <laughs> yeah, sure. And then in, at the end of the day, you know, and part of the things I have to consider is the clinicians are already doing these experiments in their offices because they have flexibility that I don't. Like any clinician can say, eh, 4.5 didn't work, let's try 6. And so a lot of them who are really on top of this are reading, they're talking to other clinicians, they go to the conferences, they hear a presentation on dosage modulation, and they try it. And so I don't have to test everything scientifically. I just need to do enough foundation, enough groundwork, and then at some point clinicians have to take over and they have to come up with the perfect dosing regimen or the perfect, do you give it once a day or twice a day or three times a day? All these things would take me 20 years to do in a purely scientific controlled fashion, but as long as clinicians are using it, they can come up with the best methods. And then maybe after a few years, we can test a couple different methods and say conclusively this is better than this other one, but that's kind of how it's supposed to work. So I'm, I'm okay with clinicians taking like what we've done scientifically and then extending it because they can do it so much faster than we can. Mm-hmm. Well, as you know, I'm really still pushing to get you working on an MS 
trial that would be amazing and i'm sure all these as you were saying all the other different tests and trials that you are doing like inflammation and things work across the board for most autoimmune um conditions so it's it's a win-win however you look at it isn't it so it's been absolutely amazing listening to your experience and your story and your journey and as I say, you were very brave to tackle it in the first place and you continue to be brave. So <laughs> that's amazing. And we look forward to uh, seeing you in September and hearing your your talk at the mm-hmm. conference. I will see you then. I'm looking forward to it. Good. And then maybe you might have looked at those 80 suggestions on your board and tell us what your your plan is. I'll probably do an update at the conference, so that that'll there'll be a lot of my science in that talk for sure. Good. Well, thank you very much for sharing your experience. We've enjoyed listening to you today. Thank you. Very welcome. Thanks. Bye. To listen to individual radio shows and interviews, go to www.mixcloud.com forward slash ldn. RT. I'll repeat that. It's www.mixcloud.com forward slash LDNRT. Today's show sponsor, Care First Speciality Pharmacy. They are leading compounders of LDN and other custom treatments servicing patients in over 18 states coast to coast. They are widely accredited to provide you with the highest quality demanded by the industry and the expert service you expect. To learn more, call 844-822-7379 or visit cfspharmacy.com. LDN Health Tracker app, called MyLDN, is available free for Androids, iPhones, Macs, PCs, iPads and notebooks. The app allows you to keep track of all your medications, pain levels, sleep, quality of life, etc. You can print out graphs and charts to take to your doctor. Full details on the LDN Research Trust website. You can keep a journal so you won't ever forget anything again and set alarms. The app is free and all your information is held securely and anonymously. By using the app, you'll be taking part in the world's largest LDN survey, anonymously. Any questions, please email me, linda at ldnrt.org.